Welcome to Roadhouse Minute, the podcast where we review the best bad movie of all time, Roadhouse, and where we always try to be nice until it's time not to be nice. I'm Roger. Marcy's not going to be with us tonight, but we're very excited. Um, This is another in an ongoing series of special episodes in the Roadhouse Cinematic Universe. Uh, And what has me so excited tonight is our special guest, uh, Neil E. Fisher. Uh, He's a writer and director of numerous film and TV projects. Uh, You may have heard him uh, previously. He's the uh, one of the hosts of the Triviality podcast, but he's here with us tonight, uh, came to us uh, as the author of the most excellent book, uh, Being Patrick Swayze. Uh, how are you, Neil? I'm doing awesome. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, well, it was it was super fun when I came on your podcast. And uh, when we connected on Twitter, I knew that uh, we would have to have a conversation at some point. Uh, so Let's start with your book, uh, which I'm holding here. It's fantastic. I read it uh, from cover to cover the day that I got it. Um, I mean, so your love for Patrick Swayze is really obvious. It comes through in every page. What inspired you to spend the time and effort to write a whole book, though? Well, I've always loved him. Uh, I started watching him when I was a little kid. My aunt would babysit me, and one of her VHSs that she had that I was able to reach up and grab being so small was Young Blood. So I would watch that over and over again uh, while she babysat me. And then uh, kind of, you know, had that fandom for a little bit while I knew him a little bit in The Outsiders, uh, a little bit in Point Break, but I didn't really know who Patrick Swayze was. And then when I was in fourth grade, uh, there was a girl I had a crush on because there's always someone you have a crush on. uh, And uh, she used to sign her notes to me, Tu Wong Fu. And I didn't know what that meant. And I was like, what does Tu Wong Fu mean? Do I need to learn this? And she said, oh, it's my favorite movie. You have to see it. So watched Tu Wong Fu, and I was like, man, this this dude is really diverse and uh, versatile, and I uh, just got really interested in him, and, uh, you know, flash forward 10, 15 years, uh, sort, of, sort of became obsessed with Roadhouse, uh, which is why I'm a huge fan of your show, and um, when I was at the bookstore, I said, you know, I've always wanted to write a book. What am I going to write about? I love pop culture. I love Hollywood, and was going through the aisles and there's no books about Patrick Swayze. There's books about Keanu and Jeff Goldblum and Nicolas Cage and all these other people. And I wanted to write a fun, accessible tribute uh, with a little bit of interactiveness uh, to it. And uh, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to do it. And my, my partner, Colleen, said, you know, stop talking about it. Just go do it. And they kind of just, you know, lit the, the fire under me. And I, I started pitching it around. I mean, they say you should write what you know. Um, but I'm just wondering... Uh, What was the process of writing a book like? I mean, obviously, you've done a lot of writing in your film and TV work, but in terms of like writing a book, how was that different from what you'd done previously? And how was your process different? That's a great question. It was very different. I'm used to writing screenplays and and things like that or or director's treatments for commercials that I'll direct, uh, which are, you know, 10, 11 pages, something like that. But for this book, it was a nonfiction book. And when I went into it, I knew nothing about the publishing world. I didn't know anyone in the publishing world. So I was sort of at a loss. And I just assumed, like, novels and things like that, that you had to write the whole thing first. Uh, So kind of a little daunting because I didn't really have the idea yet. I mean, I had the term feng shui which is in the book, which I know you read. uh, And I was like, I don't know if that's good enough for a title, but that's my idea. I can break down his career into feng shui elements uh, of appreciating him as a person, as an actor, as a performer, all that stuff. And so... Didn't really know, you know, how I wanted to do it, but I read up that if you want to sell a nonfiction book, you have to do a proposal, which is about 30, 40 pages of an outline, basically a very deep outline of here are some books that are similar. Here's why mine is different. Here's my outline. Uh, here's what I want to do with it. And so worked on that, um, had my, my 40 page outline. 
and handed it in. And, and uh, luckily, after a few tries, it got in the hands of an agent who thought it was fun. And uh, the publisher, Chronicle Books, who ended up publishing the book, really loved it. And they said, we love this idea. It's sort of off kilter. It's a little bit uh, unexpected. Uh, it, it's got some interactive uh, you know, features to it. it. You can tell that you're a pop culture fan. And so they said, you know, we'll do the book if you can get Patrick Swayze's uh, widow, Lisa Niemi, to sign off. And so I said, well, that's kind of a that's a, a tall ask because I, I don't know anyone in that family, in that camp. And so spent about four or five months trying to get in touch with her. Uh, and uh, luckily, kind of not when I was going to give up because I was, I was never going to give up. But right when I was like, you know what? I don't know if this is going to happen. I'm just going to have to like write this and put it in the bottom of my drawer. And maybe one day I'll take it out as an old man and say, I wonder what could have been. But um, her sister-in-law got in touch with me and said, oh, we, we got your letter. Uh, this sounds like a really fun idea. They read the outline and they were very, very sweet. And then uh, as I was writing the book, um, speaking of the process, it, it's different because with screenplays, I normally write with a partner. So I have pilots and things that I write with my writing partner. We sit together or we'll go on the phone or, or computer. And having the book, it was just me by myself. And it was very different because, you know, you're just in your own head. And I'm not very good about debating things in my own head. I kind of go nuts. So Luckily, I had some friends who who love Roadhouse or other Swayze movies. I had my partner, Colleen, or uh, other people that I bounce ideas off with, maybe write on some note cards, put them up on the wall and say, this is good, this isn't. But a uh, very different process from writing screenplays, but it was really fun because it was like the one time I could actually write the way that I wanted to write, which was chock full of pop culture references, which a lot of them were cut because I it, had, it couldn't be too pop culture heavy with references. But um, it was just really fun. It was just a very different experience, very fun, and, and just kind of... Um, you know, unique to pick one thing and just talk about the thing and just kind of consume yourself with it. So I was just watching his movies, you know, as I was writing all of them. And so it was just kind of fun, like being in that space. Well, that's amazing. I, I have so many follow-up questions just from that answer, but I feel like I have to just ask you a little bit more about this Lisa Niemi ask. Do mm -hmm. you feel like, I mean, do you feel like your publisher gave that to you just from a just from a due diligence standpoint, like you want to make sure that this is something that the, uh, that that she feels comfortable with, or do you feel like it was sort of like a like a personal challenge? Like, hey, if you know if if this guy can do, it's like a, a Herculean labor that was given to you as sort of like a test you had to overcome to write the book, or like a little bit of both. It might have been a little bit of both. I, I hope it wasn't the latter because that would have been cruel. But at least I came through in the end. Uh, but I think, you know, you know, credit to them. They said you know, with this book, you know, it is uh, someone who's passed away. So you can pretty much write a book about them if you want, especially if it's parody. You know, this is kind of a slightly parodied version um, of, a, of a way to sort of appreciate his career. Obviously, I said feng shui, so it's, it has a, a fun slant to it. Uh, so I think, you know, they said, well, we, we could do it, but our lawyers really love getting permission for subjects that we write about, <laughs> which I thought was great. And so I, I could see it from the lawyer's point of view, and I, I get it. And, um, you know, I got some wonderful comments about the book from co-stars and people he worked with, including a former guest of yours, who we both really admire, Marshall Teague. Um, but I think that the best stamp of approval I could have gotten better than any review was his uh, his widow, Lisa, saying, you know, she thought the book was really fun and Patrick would have laughed and, and would have enjoyed it. I know what you're saying in terms of sort of the, when you said this book was a parody, like in no way would I call this book parody in any way. I think, you know, if, if anything, I, maybe you'd have to call it like a, like a pastiche, like this book was, was, was put together with, with love. Mm -hmm. And I think with the um, sort of with the, the warmth and style that I think befits someone like Patrick Swayze, it's, it's a really interesting style. I mean, it seems like this book is designed at least as much to entertain uh, as it is to educate. 
uh, like it, for people who don't have the book and like, you should all go get this book. Um, it's, it's divided up into, you know, it, it's divided up into so many kind of very small segments that you could easily sit down. If I feel like this book is designed to be read for like five minutes at a time or like mm -hmm. an hour at a time. Uh, how did you end up coming up with like the, the design for, for the book? So the structure of the book, I always wanted it to, you know, be something that you could jump around in, um, almost like a coffee table book or something that you'd have, you know, in the room, or it's a gift book, basically, it's something you can give to someone, you know, if they're not a, a very voracious reader, they can go, okay, well, I get this, like, it has some things in here that um, are a little interactive and things. Um, but uh, I think as far as the structure, uh, when I was talking to the publisher, they had a great idea, they said, you know, this book should not only appeal to diehard fans like yourself, have a lot of Easter eggs, a lot of great info, but it should be for people who, A, don't know anything about Patrick Swayze, and B, um, maybe they just aren't really into books too much, and you want to sort of invite them um, with, you know, I have trivia, and there's games, and there's quizzes, and there's uh, different formats for explaining his movies. So there's, you know, a list of things you can eat and drink when you watch his movies, which have references from those movies in them if you're a fan, but if you're not, you're probably going to be like, wait a minute, why am I drinking Deer Blood when I'm watching Re uh, Red Dawn, you know? So um, there's fun ways of sort of chronicling his career. And uh, it was just a fun way for me to, you know, imbue some of my pop culture uh, fanaticism, some references there. Um, I originally was writing more material. So there's a lot that actually got cut out just more about his life and his career. But uh, we, we sort of made the decision that we didn't want to make it almost like a straight biography or just a ton of text. It should be something that you could breeze through, like you said, like, oh, I have five minutes. I'm just going to read this for a minute before my friend picks me up to go to the movie or whatever. Um, just different ways to make it accessible is the most important thing. Accessible for younger people who don't know a lot about him, accessible for people who are super fans that have already read his many uh, biographies that have been um, put out by him or put out by other authors uh, or his autobiography. And so um, that was really the goal. It was just something to be fun, accessible. Uh, as I've said too many times, now I'm going to stop until the end of the podcast, interactive because of the quizzes and the games. Um, but most of all, my favorite thing in the book um, speaking of the podcast is the roadhouse drinking game, which I wanted to do that. Um, we, uh, me and my friends, uh, have done a roadhouse drinking game that was similar that we created our own rules for. And then uh, a fun little story uh, about the book and everything about my fandom of her Patrick Swayze is when I, my partner, Colleen and I were first dating, uh, it was right when he passed away. Uh, it was right when we started dating, like a few weeks after. And I remember uh, I had a projection screen and I put it in my backyard and I said, you know, we're going to do a little screening of roadhouse to honor Patrick Swayze, he just passed away. You're welcome to come. She was in a, a play or a musical or something. She couldn't make it. But I remember texting her, um, asking her if she wanted to be my girlfriend while we were watching the movie, um, celebrating Swayze and doing the drinking game. So it all kind of came full circle doing the book, which was great. That's, that's how you know she's right for you, Neil. That's all. Well, and so she puts up for me watching Roadhouse all the time. Well, yeah, there you go. Yeah, I, 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 enjoy this, I enjoy this drinking game tremendously and i appreciate the fact that you've bolded the things which will absolutely put someone like me who's a total lightweight <laughs> under the table that um, was by mandate of the publisher they said you know what i think anyone who plays this game is going to get very very drunk let's please put a disclaimer our lawyers are demanding it and i was like I, I totally understand and i will bold extra items like you said just because you could get very drunk playing this game uh, you were talking about your partner Colleen a bunch, um, but I also I want to say like I love the visual style of this book, and mm -hmm. I noticed that the you so your illustrator Kyle Hilton. How much of the decision for the look of this book came from you? How much of it comes from Kyle? How much of it comes from Colleen? Like, how did you decide what you wanted this book to look like? 
So when it first started, I had, I didn't know how the publishing world worked, like we talked about. And so I just, for commercials, you know, when you, when you get a commercial to, to possibly direct, um, they ask you, Hey, write a treatment. And then in your treatment, you're going to have to have a lookbook. Uh, what are the, what is the casting look like? What are the sets going to look like the shots, all that kind of stuff. So I was used to that. So I said, okay, well, I'm going to show you what I think the book looks like. And then we'll see what happens. I, you know, little unbeknownst to me, they have a, a wonderful team of designers and everything in staff, but I sent them sort of an idea of what I thought the book should look like. They said, oh, thank you. This is great. Uh, and then they said, hey, we have a few illustrators we think would be perfect for this. Uh, here are a few names. And I recognize Kyle because he does a lot of art for Hollywood Reporter and, and Entertainment Weekly and all those great publications. And so I said, oh, he's great. Uh, let's see if we can work with Kyle. And then they actually assigned a, a really brilliant designer named Maggie Edelman, um, who really kind of did um, you know, most of the, the grunt work here with like the, the way the pages look, the color of the pages, sort of the texture, um, sort of the design elements throughout, which were great, sort of like the title page with like a big piece of art and um, the way that everything is sort of broken up. And so she really influenced uh, the overall color scheme and, and everything like that. I would say, you know, for specific things, I'd be like, all right, well, I want to talk about his clothing and, and the certain outfits you can wear. Like, what if we had a picture of him from this movie here with like a list of things on the left? And so it was really a collaboration between me and Kyle Hilton and Maggie, Maggie Elliman to um, really sort of decide how the book looked. And I, I have to give credit to the publisher because if you have the book, which I know you have right now, I did not know it was going to come out with sort of this like soft, almost like pillow-like cover that's like, it reminds me of like a 1990s uh, trapper that you have at school. And uh, it was just very nostalgic. And I did not know it was going to come out like that. But when I got them in the mail for the first time, I was like, whoa, this actually like looks really colorful. It looks, you know, and I, I hate to say this, but like I never wrote a book before. So I'm like, wow, it looks like it, it was expensive to make, which I was like, well, maybe that means they like it. So I was really excited about that. So, yeah, so we're talking about your book, Being Patrick Swayze. I just want to make sure I plug it as much as possible. Um, maybe we could talk about Patrick Swayze for a little while. I mean, obviously, he's near and dear to my heart yep. um, as the, the centerpiece of, of our movie. Um, one of the things that I, I remember reading, which I think I agree with in your book, is that Patrick Swayze is a, a very underappreciated actor. Like, why do you think he never really got the credit that maybe he deserved? That's a really good question. You know, I think it's a little, it's a two part answer. Uh, one thing I talk about in the book, which is very commendable um, for him as an actor is, you know, he started out when he was younger and he was in a movie called Skate Town USA from 1979. And it, it was sort of a, a, not a huge hit, but it was a big enough hit for him where the studio was like, Hey, we want to sign you to a three, four picture deal here where you're going to be a teen idol. Everyone's, you know, all the girls are going to love you. You're going to be on Tiger Beat. You're going to be in all these magazines. And he, right away, when he was young, I mean, he had the wherewithal to go, actually, I, I don't want to be labeled as one thing. I, I don't want to be this teen idol. I want to be a dramatic actor, an actor that everyone takes seriously. And so he carried that mantra with him throughout his career to the point where anytime he did anything that was somewhat successful, like something big, um, he would get offers for things very similar, but he would always take a hard left turn. And sometimes those movies worked out. And they were great. They were also hit. Sometimes they were sort of bombs at the box office and no one's probably seen them. And I, I commend him for that because he stuck to his guns. And I think one of the reasons he didn't become a superstar, a big superstar, other than sort of like the decade of the 80s, is the fact that he took those left turns and he just wasn't getting the consistent Tom Cruise level of hit after hit after hit or other actors of that nature. And so I think that's one of the reasons he didn't become a, a superstar. And I also, you know, I think 
with a lot of actors nowadays, you know, they're, they're having, you know, second careers, really. We think of John Travolta in Pulp Fiction. He sort of had a resurgence for his career. Swayze could have had that, but he was just, you know, taken to us uh, too soon from pancreatic cancer. So I think that's sort of the two-pronged answer of that, um, of why he didn't become a superstar. And I think it's sort of great to look back at his filmography now and be like, wow, that was a really interesting choice. Like it, it didn't really work for the most part. I mean, he, he was good in the movie. The movie wasn't great, but um, you know, you got to hand it to him. He, he tried. Yeah. I'm looking through the the segment where you basically go through all of his movies, the movies meditations um, section. And, you know, you're right. I mean, he, you know, he'll go, for example, like from, from roadhouse to next to kin to ghost, and then immediately from ghost to, to point break. And uh I, I see what you're saying that he, I think he, I think he went out of his way to sort of try to be very diverse, uh, in, in the mm-hmm. choices that he, he makes, um, that you, you've heard the story, I'm sure about how he ended up in ghost, right? Yes. That the reason why he's in ghost is because of roadhouse. Yes. Yeah. I think I, I might've mentioned it, uh, in the book a little bit, but there was a fun story where, uh, director Jerry Zucker and, uh, Bruce Joel Rubin, the, the writer, uh, went to go see Roadhouse and uh, they walked out and and uh, Jerry Zucker said, over my dead body, I'm never going to cast Swayze in this movie because he's he's a tough guy. He's a macho man. Um, and uh, he can, you know, he convinced them to uh, cast him like he did many of his roles, many of his famous roles. He, he had to convince everyone and prove to them that he could do it. Uh, and I just really love that story about, uh, you know, him convincing him like, hey, I, I can do this movie. I, I can audition and I can be sentimental and he's the reason that Whoopi Goldberg's in that movie. He said, I'm not going to do this movie unless you cast her. And she went on to win the Oscar. Um, but I'm not sure if there's any other details that you wanted to. Add That's to a that. good story. That's not the story that I've heard though. If you want to connect it directly back to roadhouse, what I have heard, and I've read this in a couple of places, enough places that I think that it's actually true. It, it very well could have been that point break was the movie that came after roadhouse. I think Patrick Swayze kind of thought that roadhouse was going to launch him into being, mm-hmm you know, a, a, a leading man action star type, uh, uh, maybe position, at least at that time in his career. But the story that I've heard is that in his apocalyptic final fight with Jimmy, Mm -hmm. uh, with, uh, Marshall Teague, he messed up his knee pretty bad. Um, that's true. And so he's, so he said to his agent, like, look, you got to find me a movie where I can, you know, do this uh, without having to be an action star. And that movie was ghost. Um, that that is, is also true, actually, now that you say that, because what's funny about that story is you're right. They had the epic fight. Uh, I'm, Marshall Teague may have talked about this on, on the podcast. I can't remember. It's been so long since I've listened to it. But um, when, when they had the, the fight and Jimmy Reno hits him with the log, that was an actual log. It wasn't a prop log like they thought broke some of Swayze's ribs. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, he was definitely banged up. And that is why he was supposed to star in Predator 2 which went to Danny Glover, but he didn't want to do an action movie like Roadhouse. And so that's, yeah, he, he pivoted to audition for Ghost. Give me something that's a little bit more sentimental where I don't have to run around and kick people. Speaking of him zigging and zagging, and maybe this is like you picking your favorite child, but I was just curious. I mean, he has had so many different kind of, he's, he's, he's played so many different archetypes. Do you have, like, if, if you had to pick just one, is there one that, that you prefer more than anything else? I mean, obviously, you like Roadhouse a lot, but, like, is is that the Patrick Swayze that you enjoy the most? Are you preferring him in something like Dirty Dancing or Ghost or North and South or, you know, even his later things? Uh, like, what's what's your Patrick Swayze? Or do you it's, like them all? 
I mean, I do, I do like them all, um, and I do lean towards Roadhouse, but I'm just going to pretend that that one doesn't count because uh, we're we're talking about Roadhouse and we love it. I think, you know, it's a tie. I think you probably want to lean Dirty Dancing uh, because it's sort of his most iconic role. Uh, he was able to perform, uh, you know, some of that tenderness that I talk about in the book, you know, the love story with Baby, but he also had sort of that uh, street tough uh, anger uh, for Johnny Castle, which... Uh, was a nice juxtaposition there, nice yin and yang. But I think, it, you know, I might have to lean point break. And I'm only saying that I know he's a villain, sort of. He's an anti-hero, I guess. And uh, he's he's the evil character, quote-unquote, of the movie. But what I like about it is uh, that character is very close to him in real life, just like Dalton is, because he loved philosophy. He loved uh, sort of, you know, Eastern culture and and sort of thinking about things a little bit differently, the way the world works. And I think that movie is, is sort of close to him as a person. Um, and it, what's great about it is, you know, he could have played that as just like a, a Bond villain, right? Where he's just kind of crazy the whole time, but you actually kind of like believe him, you know, you want to like surf with Bodhi and you're like, oh yeah, this guy's talking about us being in like metal coffins, like driving down the highway. Like totally. I, I work a nine to five. I know what that's like. And, and you're, it's a little too late before you're like, wait a minute, he's a bank robber. Now there's guns on me. But, um, I just think it's a fun role for him. It's physical, which is, he was physical. Uh, it's sort of cerebral. He was that way. It's philosophical. Um, and uh, he also gets to be tough, which is great. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, at point break is going to be our first entry in the, uh, Roadhouse Cinematic Universe when we start branching out into other titles. Uh, and Marcy hasn't seen it yet, or I'll make sure that we release this after she sees that because I want to make sure that uh, when the big reveal happens, uh, if she hasn't figured it out by then, that it's that's a fun surprise for her. But uh, I'm glad you mentioned Point Break because uh, mm -hmm. I think one of the things that I feel about Patrick Swayze is that he really he really wanted to try to be as personally involved as much as possible. I mean, he was, he's sort of like Tom Cruise before yeah. Tom Cruise. I mean, I don't know if he would have been like, uh, well, he did get a pilot's license, but I don't know if he would be like flying fighter jets and stuff like that, but wanting to be in the movie as much as possible. Right. You know, like there's stories about how he, he wanted to do everything in roadhouse. Uh, and I think he did a lot of the stuff in, in point break too. Like, where do you think that comes from? And how do you feel like that influenced the quality of his performances? I definitely think it influenced his performances. It's the same reason it does for Tom Cruise, because, you know, when you're seeing a movie, everyone pretty much for the most part, uh, unless you're a little bit younger, you know, it's it's make believe it's fake. But when you see the actor actually doing everything, you see them in the stunts in a wide in a close up and a wide shot. And you believe that they're playing that character because, you know, I, there's part of me that loves uh, the stunt men and women of old who are in movies where it's clearly uh, a stunt person. So like a good example, which I always laugh at, but it's great is in T2 uh, Terminator two, when they're, they're on the, the LA river and then the big semi uh, is following them and all that kind of stuff and crashing. Like you can tell when the explosion happens that it's not Arnold Schwarzenegger, but uh, you still appreciate it. But I think what someone like Swayze or Cruz does is, is just really, you know, adds a level of authenticity to it. Cause you're like, wow, they were actually trained. They, they did the, choreography like it just makes it a better experience and i think where it comes from with him is his entire life was all about doing everything he could becoming the best at it mastering any skill um you know you're talking about a guy who was uh, a world-class dancer since he was a little kid he played violin he was an eagle scout he played football he could have gone to college or pro playing football he could have gone to, uh, to college or the olympics play, uh, doing gymnastics 
he just wanted to be good at every single thing possible. And I think that it was that drive of, okay, you're, you're going to tell me I'm going to play a surfer. No stunt person's going to be doing, you know, some of this, some of these things. I want to learn how to do this. And, you know, he did learn how to surf. He got hurt um, a little bit surfing. Um, and actually it's kind of funny. He actually got hurt uh, when he wasn't filming. He was just fooling around on the skateboard uh, on the side of the set. And he hurt himself there too. But um, the, the good thing about Point Break, though, is he was so obsessed with skydiving that he was skydiving 50, 60 times during production. And the insurance agents had to be like, look, you can't skydive. You're the star <laughs> of the movie, so you can't do it. And then he's like, well, let me do one jump in the movie for real, which they did. So when you watch the movie, um, there's a shot from inside the plane and uh, he sort of get, he says like adios or something. And he falls back out of the plane in the air. And that's him really skydiving. Everything else is done on um, on lifts and wires and whatnot, but uh, that's a real skydiving moment for him. And they, that was like his caveat. I, let me do that one, and I'll stop taking all the actors and and, and going skydiving separately. Well, yeah, I'm I'm glad uh, I'm glad you mentioned Roadhouse. So one of the things that we talked about on the podcast that I think I think one of the things that makes Roadhouse such a really good action movie is the fact that they they cast people that could handle themselves in fight scenes mm-hmm. and all, like almost every single one of the the main actors has previous martial arts experience or fight experience so when it's time to stage those fight scenes you know whether it's uh, Patrick Swayze or Marshall Teague or Sam Elliott or you know even people like Anthony DeLongis like you name it like those right. people for the most part are are doing their own fights Right. I mean, obviously, there's some stunts where people are like going through windows and stuff like that. But for the most part, you the people you see on screen are the actors. And I think that's one of the things that makes it uh, a, a better movie, frankly. Oh, 100 percent. And I think one of the the filmmaking techniques that they use that that sort of Dean Cundy employed uh, with his camera work and uh, Rowdy Harrington did with uh, the blocking is, you know, so many modern action movies uh, that I'm sure everyone, once they think about this now and they watch it, you can, you notice when the editing is very frenetic, uh, lots of cuts, lots of different angles, lots of shots to sort of make up for the fact that maybe the actor isn't the most athletic or maybe they're not the best at choreography. We call um, that the uh, the Michael Bay effect. The Michael Bay effect, yes. And you have someone like Patrick Swayze, who not only is a great dancer, so he he knows how to do choreography, but then you have, you know, uh, Benny the Jet, you know, uh, choreographing for him, Urquidas, and um, and then Marshall T, like you said, like people who are actual fighters, someone like Terry Funk, who professional wrestling is a lot of choreography and thinking on your feet and looking really good. But from the filmmaking perspective, a lot of those fights are shot in wides, medium and wides. Like they don't really go up close and do a ton of frenetic editing. Um, and I think that really helps sell it. I mean, that that fight at the end with Jimmy Reno is so good because they let it play. They let it play out in a wide or in a two shot and they let them actually like look like they're hitting each other, which they are sometimes. And that really adds to it because when you can see uh, a movie like, say, John Wick, for example, that's a ton of choreography in those movies, but they leave it wide. They do long, unbroken takes um, to really sell the realism of the fight. And um, it, it's a testament to the stunt performers who are doing it. And also the lead actors in those kind of movies that are um, taking on that responsibility to make it look authentic. Yeah. You mentioned Dean Cundy. And one of the things that we also talked about on the podcast is the fact that Dean Cundy can only light up scenes to 11. Um, that's yep. his, <laughs> which is great because you can see yep. everything and it's great that you can see everything that, you know, I think 
it's a, sort of a cheap trick in a lot of movies where either the effects aren't that great or maybe, you know, they have to cut around things that they, they just turn the lights down so that you can't see the stuff that they don't want you to see. But, you know, in Roadhouse, you don't really ever have to do that. Um, the, the lighting can be turned up because you don't have to worry about um, the, a lack of authenticity uh, yeah. in different scenes. Yeah, I think that's that's true. And I think, you know, the beginning of the movie uh, when they're at the bandstand is a little bit darker, you know, not as not as bright. But then once you get to Jasper and the double deuce, you know, that Western element kind of comes in and you see everything like you see the entire bar just like you would in High Noon or Shane or something where you walk through the the doors and you see, you know, the the bar and the whiskey and the dudes in the back at the table. And it has sort of that classic American Western um feeling to it where you know when you see a western and you can know right away when you go into a saloon like oh those guys at the table are the mean guys and if someone pisses them off they're going to get really angry and there's going to be a fist fight and it just has that you just know like it has that feeling of this is not a bar i want to walk into because i'm going to get hit with a glass thrown at my way or <laughs> uh kathleen wilhoit's going to hit me with her uh with her uh her drink, service tray her service tray yeah <laughs> in the back of the head so uh, i think that's what's great about it you know it's a little bit of, of comedy there a little bit of uh um, lightheartedness to it, which is great. Carrie Ann's three phases of fury. First, you hit somebody with a bottle, then you punch them in the face, and then you hit them with your with your waitress tray. And then you sing number four. Uh, that's well. That's only if you really want to like put someone out of their misery. Um, <laughs> well, so Neil on the podcast, and again, I'm sorry we didn't get you for a week of minutes, but there are sort of three classic questions that we like mm -hmm. to ask our guests. And I want to make sure we get a chance to ask you all of them for sure. Um, and so uh, my first question is like, do you remember, um, do you remember seeing Roadhouse for the first time? And just sort of, what was that like? I'm trying to think of the first time I actually watched it. Uh, that's a great question. You know, it was always on TV, uh, as everyone always says, uh, and I even put in the book, it, they consider it one of the movies that saved cable because it's on TV so much and you could turn on your TV at any moment and it's there. But I think the first time, that's a really good question. The one I remember the most vividly was my, my birthday is on uh, New Year's Day. And one year, uh, my friend said, you know, one of my family friends has a condo in the city in Chicago. They, they'll let us sleep over there if we want to. We can go down downtown and just sleep over. It'll be kind of a fun a fun thing. And I remember I brought a copy of Roadhouse, not thinking anyone would want to watch it, quite honestly. But I was like, you know what? I'm just going to bring this. If anyone wants to watch it, it's great. You know, it'll be technically my birthday, but I'm not going to, like, push it on anyone. And uh, we had a, a, you know, a fun night, and we woke up, and we're kind of just relaxing. And someone's like, well, I don't know what we should do. I don't really feel like going out. Everything's closed. And then someone's like, what's on the counter? And I was like, oh, that's, that's my copy of Roadhouse. And they're like, I've never seen Roadhouse. And my other friend, I've never seen Roadhouse. And I was like, well, what other New Year's Day celebration is better than this? And we popped it in. And I, I, the way I look at Roadhouse is it's a way, uh, a piece of scripture, and you got to convert people. And so I converted <laughs> both of them, and they loved it. And so instead of me knocking on their door saying, uh, we'd love to talk to you uh, about Jesus Christ like the Latter-day Saints, I said, I'd love to talk to you about Roadhouse. And then they, they bought it. And now they're, uh, they're in the, the camp with all of us. What is it about Roadhouse that especially appeals to you? I mean, I can see the movie poster behind you. You talk about it in almost every episode of Triviality. Like, what is it about that movie that is appeals to you so much? Uh, you know, it's so funny. I've never actually been asked that, even though I talk about it all the time. 
uh, it's a, a few pronged thing for me. So as a filmmaker, um, you know, you have to know about Joel Silver. If you're a filmmaker, famous eighties producer, you've talked about him a ton on the podcast, just bringing the biggest and brightest minds of action cinema and explosions and, and all that good stuff together. So, you know, love Joel Silver. So getting a chance to watch one of his movies, um, Steven Spielberg is my favorite director, uh, ever since I was a little kid. And, uh, you know, he worked with Dean Cundey on Jurassic Park and Hook and a few other movies. And so knowing about Dean Cundey's filmography, him working with John Carpenter, who I also love on Halloween, uh, and also Back to the Future, one of my other favorite movies. So not only is there a producer I love, there's a producer, a director of photography that I'm obsessed with. And um, I think the reason I liked it so much, maybe it's a little bit to do with my partner, Colleen, like that story I told you, but I think it's just one of those movies where you put it on, you're always going to have an enjoyable moment. Any scene that you're in, there's going to be something that you're going to take away from it. Someone could hate the movie and they're going to go, actually that one scene was funny or this thing that happened was, was really entertaining and it's unabashedly loud, violent. There's explosions, there's nudity, there's good lines. There's really, really corny lines that are delivered corny um, there's, you know, performances that are really, really big, you know, really, really small. There's just something for everyone in the movie, I think. And it's sort of like the last, the last, um, example of, I don't know, example's not even the right word. It's sort of like, it's the end of the eighties, really. It's 1989. The hair is I've big. I've said that too. I, I've yeah. on the podcast, I've called Roadhouse the Woodstock of the 1980s. That's the, like, that's a perfect way to describe after, it. Yeah. After, after that, we had to like, yeah, I don't know we had to be responsible uh, and life started yeah. to have consequences in the nineties. And so you, you couldn't make roadhouse anymore. You had to make point break. Yeah. Um, but yeah, roadhouse is sort of the, it's the, it's the culmination of, of everything that's great about, uh, about eighties uh, movies for sure. Oh yeah. My next question, which we always ask our guests and I'm really excited to see where you take this question on, on our Wednesday shows, we would give our guests sort of a personality quiz of sort. It's a really simple question. Which of Brad Wesley's henchmen do you most identify with? Uh, so I've listened to, I think I'm on episode 60, maybe 65 uh, of the show. I can't, or I'm pretty high up there. So I've listened to everyone's answer. Every time they, they listen, there's a lot of tinkers. I've noticed a lot of tinkers. Uh, not too many, maybe one Jimmy Reno, if I'm correct, maybe, maybe two, not a lot. Um, so here's what I'm going to do. And I don't know if I'm going to be the only one doing this. I am a perfectionist as a filmmaker, as a writer, anything, uh, just a perfectionist of everything here. I'm a planner, uh, when it comes to things that I, that I film a lot of storyboarding, all that kind of stuff. Uh, when it comes to writing, I, I think about everything way too much before I actually get any words on the page, which is not the way you're supposed to do it. Apparently like you're supposed to write on the page a ton and then edit and I'll do it all that stuff. But I overanalyze everything. I would be Brad Wesley because I would want to be in charge. And that would, it's kind of a weird answer. I don't think anyone said it yet, but I would want to be in charge of all the henchmen and that, delegate them to do my dirty work. That is an out of the box answer, Neil, um, since Brad Wesley is not one of Brad Wesley's henchmen. But I tell mm -hmm. you what, since you are coming to us for <laughs> through being Patrick Swayze, I will let you color outside the lines a little bit. So you, so you, you fashion yourself as a big time crime boss in a very small town. Like that's, that's where you want to go. Well, I think, you know, not only uh, does he have a, a four-wheeler, he wears Uggs, leather Uggs, which look like leather Uggs. Um, and uh, I let me let me be clear, though. I, I don't want to be Brad Wesley. I'm not Brad Wesley. We I, understand. He, thank you. He's a terrible man. Um, but I think, you know, he has the control and 
I would want to be the one to go up against Dalton uh, mano a mano at the end uh, out of everyone. If, if I had to pick a henchman, it would be Jimmy Reno, just to be clear, uh, because he looks the coolest. He's got the best, you know, hair of the henchman. He's the best fighter out of the henchman. He, he wears t-shirts with the buttons all the way down. So you see his chest hair. So if I had to pick a henchman, it would be Jimmy Reno, but I just wanted to be different because everyone else is picking Tinker. I want to be, that's why I was picking Brad Wesley. But it's a great choice. And, you know, just sort of on a, on a side note, uh, I think Ben Gazzara's performance in Roadhouse is fantastic. It's, it's really nice to see uh, an actor who's, you know, just sort of very classic mm-hmm. actor, you know, like I think one of the stories I remember hearing about Ben Gazzara, like he's old school. And I mean that in every sense of the word, like there were stories that when he was on set, he wouldn't actually address the members of the crew by name. He would just say like, you know, wardrobe. <laughs> um, cause that's the way you were trained to be an actor in like the 1950s. Right. Um, and, but uh, I just, I love, I really appreciate it when actors, uh, are not too proud to just like totally camp it up. Like, I think he, he absolutely knew what movie he was in, uh, and he did not try to kind of fight against that. I, I think he, he relished being this over the top, like, ridiculous small-time crime boss uh, yeah it, it's a great performance i i cannot imagine i mean i you know they i i guess the the rumor is that uh they wanted james garner in that role um which you know james garner is a great actor don't get me wrong but like i think he would have been like you would have seen james garner and been like oh he's a good guy um and i think ben gazera is like perfect for that job no, he's, he's great. Um, I think, like you said, he, he understands the role. He knows it's sort of over the top. And I learned from your podcast that that was one of the most uh, talked about movies when fans came up to him, which I think is so fun. Like you know, a movie that he probably thought was, oh, this is, you know, I'm just going to get some cash for this movie or whatever. Uh, and it, it ended up being one that people talked to him about a ton. Um, and his performance is so like deliciously over the top that me and my friends will often quote um, just random lines that no one else will ever know what they're about. There's just so many lines or when you're driving, you're, you know, life is but a dream, you know, shaboom, shaboom. So like, you know, it's just such a fun performance. I mean, it's so good. I like to quote from that scene, the part where he says, I believe all of us has a destiny and, and my <laughs> destiny is to gather onto me what is mine. Great line. Um, it's, it's a great scene. Or when he talks about having Dalton's ass on his wall. <laughs> no 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 he says yeah he says uh i see you found my trophy room the only thing that's missing is your ass your ass uh, <laughs> i can't i can't wait for those minutes to come out um <laughs> so uh, just wondering too if uh this might be hard for you to pick out as well but if if you had been a guest on our podcast like if you if you'd come in for your three episodes like which part of the movie if you had to pick out one or maybe two or your th- like two or three favorite parts of the movie uh what would they be yeah it's a great question because i just wish i knew about your show earlier and we had connected earlier because you know if you if you were starting this and and marcy was like oh i'm a little sick today i didn't like just call me anytime like it'd be two <laughs> in the morning and i would do it so i think you know my favorite parts let's see that would be fun on the podcast is minutes uh one would be wade garrett when he first arrives at the double douche as he calls it uh-huh. uh which is just a great line reading from sam elliott and it also contains one of my favorite parts that's an inside joke between me and my friends and i uh, i can't remember if you talked about it but Actually, I don't think you did, which I I would have brought up on the show. Um, There's a great bit of ADR that is just out of nowhere. And they don't show who says it, but it's just out of nowhere 
when uh, Dalton, or excuse me, when Wade first walks open, he's like, you know, uh, you know, hey, Runt, or whatever he says to, to Dalton, someone in the background goes, who is that guy? And they <laughs> use that ADR like two or three times in the movie, but it's very clearly right there. Who is that guy? And so me and my friends always say that, um, which I think is great. So that that scene right there, uh, Wade's first arrival uh, when Every, uh, everything through the loading dock, basically everything through the loading dock, because one of the greatest lines from from Wade Garrett and that is, uh, uh, well, I sure as hell ain't going to show you my dick. Um, <laughs> so so that's great. Um, I would also pick. Um, wow. So our trivia team name, when we started our podcast, before we were ever a podcast, I chose the name uh, the name Pain Don't Hurt. So I love that scene, but uh, I'm not going to pick that one. I would say uh dalton and doc's uh sort of you know culmination up to their sex scene just because the sex scene is ridiculous um it uses these arms of mine which was in dirty dancing yeah uh, also during a sex scene so a little you know one of his favorite playlists there um and then i just love 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 the story that bill murray calls uh kelly lynch's husband the writer of scrooge uh every time he uh he sees it on the tv and says patrick swayze is having sex with your wife is that the connection between Mitch Glazer and Bill Murray? Mitch Glazer is the screenwriter of Scrooged? That's correct. Yep. Wow. Yeah. I think that movie is underrated. I like Scrooged a lot. It is. It is. It's, I mean, it's so, um, there's so much style to it. I mean, it's very, very well thought out and um, just the production design, the costumes, everything. Like, yeah, I agree. Uh, and then finally, you know, that's a tough question. I would say, I would say the fight scene. I mean, it's like the the coolest thing in the movie uh, between Dalton and Jimmy Reno. Um, I just think it's such a great scene. You get Emmett's life is saved. And I will say this, and uh, you're not on the show yet. I haven't heard it yet, obviously, because it's not been released. But every time I watch it with my friends, when Dalton rips out Jimmy's throat and to get back at Wesley, Jimmy just tried to kill Emmett, blew up his house, basically put it on fire. Doc gets angry with him that he self, he was in self-defense and he killed Jimmy immediately angry. Not even like, you know, I'm going to think about it. I understand she's a doctor. She has a code. She knows that this man has like ruined this town. And then he, he was almost going to get shot because as Wade tells us, if someone pulls a gun on you, you have two choices. Uh, and I won't say it for, for you having to bleep it, but she, you know, he kills Jimmy Reno. And then immediately she screams, she goes into the water and she's angry at Dalton. I can't believe you did this. You know, I'm really angry. And I just, I, every, that character choice for me bugs me every single time. It's like that. It's when Atticus Finch loses in To Kill a Mockingbird. I, I hate that moment. And it's also in Saving Private Ryan when uh, Upham doesn't go in and save Adam, Adam Goldberg. Those are like the three times where I'm like, oh, come on, it's going to be different this time. And it never is. Yeah. You know, the character of Doc in the movie, I guess, and I, you know, this is from the 1980s, which is probably the reason why female characters in 1980s movies are not often given a lot of uh, agency. Right. Uh, and I think that happened to Doc in Roadhouse. Like, if, if you read the shooting script, uh, she's very different, much more assertive, much more confident. She likes shooting guns. Uh, she doesn't seem like the kind of person who would react with such a shock and horror Right. Uh, about what has happened. And I do think she should have had the wherewithal to just kind of to to contemplate the situation and fig like figure out what's going on um, and maybe cut cut Dalton some slack. But then, you know, then you don't get the the kind of the 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 separation between our, True. our male and female leads, which I, I guess is necessary. Uh, I guess so. I mean, screenwriting terms is always, you know, anytime a couple breaks up in a movie, there's half hour left. So <laughs> it's usually what it is. 
Sure. Well, gosh, I uh, I don't have any more other I don't have any more questions about about Roadhouse. But is there anything else about the movie that we didn't get a chance to talk to uh, talk about tonight that you would have wanted to? Well, that's a that's a great question. Um, I'm upset that the uh, show's fashion consultant isn't here because I wanted to talk to Marcy a little bit, but that's okay. Tell her I said hello. I certainly um, will. One of my favorite parts of the podcast, uh, a quick aside, is when you, which is one, also one of my favorite parts of the podcast, you get into the weeds a little bit about, I wonder if this is happening in this scene and maybe they're thinking this and this is their intention here. And Marcy kind of goes, I think they're just doing it this way because it's this is what they're doing. And you're like, okay, that's fair. And then you move on because that's one of my favorite things. You're like, well, maybe maybe they're thinking, you know, my background is in martial arts. I'm not going to, you know, and Marcy will be like, no, I, I think... I think they just made that choice because the door was in front of them or something. So um, <laughs> kudos to Marcy on that. That's always fun. Um, as far as the movie, though, um, my favorite thing we haven't talked about, you know, there's just so much fun in it. You know, I think the soundtrack is great, like you said. Um, I think uh, Jeff Healy, the music is so cool. I mean, just great guitar solos. Um, the fact that he was in the movie, which they don't really do that too much anymore. It would be like a pop star or something or like a big country star that they'd give a cameo to for one song. And then they'd, you know, walk past the lead and go like, nice job, Dalton. And they'd be done for the movie, like carry on to word or something. So just having like an actual blind blues musician who probably no one knew of in 1989, um, being sort of a big supporting character, which is great. Do you have a particular Jeff he uh, Jeff Healy band performance? Like, is there a particular song from the movie that you... Uh, that you like the most? Oh God, that's a really good question. Uh, wow, I, I think uh, I'm, I'm singing in my in my head right now. Um, I don't know if I have a favorite one. Do you have a favorite one? Well, I, I'm partial to our outro music, which is when the night comes falling from the sky. Um, I, I do love that song. Um, it's I, so much better than the original. Have you ever listened to the Bob Dylan electric version of that song? I haven't actually because I'm so used to it's bad. Uh, Jeff Healy. Okay. It's bad. Don't. Okay. Um, anytime he does a solo, I think it I think it's great. Um, oh, that's another thing I would have talked about. The shirtless guy, when they first start showing the double deuce, when there's the, the chicken wire and everything like that, the blonde shirtless guy who looks like he's gonna be trouble, uh, but they never really do anything with him. He's just his dancing is so weird in that scene. He's got like bright denim jeans on and no shirt. I know who you're really talking about. You know what I'm talking about. He's prominently featured in our crowd surfing a couple of times, I think. Yeah, and he's. it's always nice to see him in the background. And speaking of crowd surfing and of actors, I just really wish Keith David's role would have been what it was supposed to be because I love Keith David. And how cool would that have been to have more Keith David? Well, I'm always up for more Keith David. Um, but when you have a three-and-a-half-hour rough cut, you have to get down to 114 minutes somehow. I want to see the three-and-a-half-hour rough cut, and I do want to say <laughs> – the two things that I learned from the movie, uh, and you'll be able to pull the names right now, which I know you're you're being a little bit more deep into it than I have been recently, but learning that Scott Kahn's mom is the waitress. Ju is it Judy? Julie the waitress? Uh, yes. Uh, Judy the waitress is Sheila Kahn. Sheila Kahn, yeah. She's selling drugs. I didn't know that. That was such a great fact that you said on the show, um, that that's his mom. Uh, and then, um, I loved the fact about, uh, the bartender who I use this with my friends as well. Another inside joke when they come over, do you want leaded or unleaded if it's in the morning or at night? I wish I could find that guy. Honestly, I would give him a 30 minute, uh, special episode for sure. But I have no, I have no idea where I could find James McIntyre. I hope that he has not succumbed yet to the roadhouse curse. I know. And I'll, I'll try us. and find him for you. How about that? I'll see if I can do it. If you could somehow connect me to james mcintyre oh what a what a moment that would be 
No, I think that would be great because I want an autographed picture from him that says leaded or unleaded. And I want to find out. I mean, like, it, aren't aren't there SAG rules that say that if you have a speaking line in a movie, you have to get credited? So yeah, no, I mean, you're right when you said that on the show. So if it's a if it's a union movie, uh, normally you keep dialogue to a minimum for side characters because if they do talk, they get a higher rate. Yeah, because you don't have to pay them an extra rate. An extra rate usually might be you know 150 two dollars or you can go a little bit higher than that uh, for the day. But if they talk, they have to get put onto a, a SAG contract for that movie um, for them to have uh, sort of points to get their SAG membership. So yeah, they would get more money. He must have been doing a favor for someone. That's the only reason why. I agree. Well, listen, Neil, before we go, um, plug your book again for sure, because this this book is fantastic. Everybody should get it. I know you can get it from everywhere, but plug your book again one more time. Yep. So the, the book is called Being Patrick Swayze, Essential Teachings from the Master of the Mullet. Uh, you can uh, pretty much get it anywhere you buy books. If you want to support indie bookstores, you can go to bookshop.org, order it from there, go to your local bookstore and order it. Or if you just like it within like a day or two, you can go to Amazon. All of them uh, support me and the cause uh, equally. And uh, yeah, and if, if uh, any listeners of the show, you can reach out to me. I'm in the new Double Deuce Facebook group or um, you can find me through Roger. If you want like a little signed sticker plate, I have some of those. I can personalize them with some some favorite quotes from Roadhouse. You can slap it on the inside of the book. I'll mail it to you. Um, and uh, yeah, if you'd like to hear me on my podcast, uh, it's a weekly pub trivia style game show podcast called Triviality. We re- uh, release episodes every Tuesday. And uh, you don't have to be great at trivia. You just have to sort of enjoy the process and just like going to a pub, having a beer and listening to some trivia questions. We sort of uh, say we have a lack of seriousness meeting a little bit of knowledge. So uh, more fun than uh, educational, but uh, it's always a good time. So you can check us out uh, pretty much anywhere you get your podcasts. Well, I can attest as a former guest who I would uh, just going to say had a fairly successful experience. I really enjoyed it. It was a great time. Um, and I encourage you all to subscribe and listen to that after you get the book for sure. And thanks again, Neil. It's just been really a pleasure having you on. Uh, and I hope that, that we can stay connected. And if more things come up, um, with, uh, Patrick Swayze or Roadhouse, hopefully we'll be able to reconnect with that as well. I would love that. Uh, it's one of my favorite podcasts. I'm so happy I found it and found you and Marcy and, and all the great work you do. I know how much hard work goes into making a podcast. I hope your listeners understand uh, the editing, the planning, uh, all of that. It does take a lot of hours, especially when someone has another job or other things to do. So, uh, you know, congratulations to both of you for doing this. I can't wait to come to the end of the podcast, but it'll also be bittersweet because then there's no more Roadhouse talking and then you're just going to have to do another show and, and I'll be listening. Oh, great. I appreciate that. And thank you once again for listening to another episode of Roadhouse Minute. Please, if you can, rate and review us on your favorite podcatching app. Come and join us on Facebook at The New Double Deuce. We're also on Twitter and Instagram at, at @rhminute, And you can email us at daltonsaysbenice at gmail.com. So remember, until next time, be nice. Bye now. 